This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Gelsman gets there. Another good kick from him, and here's Harton now. Harton going past one man, finding Wagstaff. Wagstaff turning well, setting up Chilton. No. Now then, everybody, uh, welcome to the latest uh, episode of the To Hull and Back podcast. Uh, very, very, uh, well, well, we're very excited to do this episode, our first live one, obviously, ever, so bear with us, because um, Will usually has quite a bit of editing to do, because we're all useless at this. Um, <laughs> we, we've got, obviously, special guest Phil Brown on, um, obviously our former manager, first ever manager to take us to the Premier League. We're absolutely thrilled to be talking to Phil. Uh, so anybody watching the uh, stream today, if you want, I have a question for him or you want a topic for us to, to talk about with Phil, do comment and let us know and we'll try and fit it in if we can. Um, obviously, welcome, Phil. Thank you for joining us today. How are you? Uh, I'm good. I'm in good form. Um, I'm out of football at the moment, unfortunately, but um, for the first time in my life, I've got to say it's a, it's a good time for it. You know, my me, me wife's due in, in about um, 10, 12 days' time, so... Uh, if I was involved in football, it would be a difficult situation to try and tie yeah. the two of them in together. But, yeah, it um, would be. Congratulations. Yeah, congratulations. 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 <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Would you would you on the 23rd of uh, of January? So it's well, strange enough, you tied this one in with Craig Fagan. Uh, Craig was my assistant at uh, South End United, and he's due on Thursday. So, um, <laughs> or shall I say, his missus is due on Thursday. <laughs> Have you both been on a night out together or something? What's ah, it was one of them. Um, <laughs> nah, he's, uh, he's got a, a lovely um, partner and um, they've been planning it for a while. Unfortunately, the sack at uh, Southend didn't come at a time mm. where both of us needed it. You know, we were trying to plan our way through the season with... Uh, uh, with two expectant uh, women, uh, one on the 15th of January, one on the 23rd of January. It was going to be a difficult period, let, let, let me say, yeah. from a football perspective, let alone a geographics or a, or whatever. Uh, but uh, anyway, we're out of that situation and we're trying to get on with uh, delivering two children. Uh, yeah, well, I, I'm, I'm going to say from experience, um, I'd say it's a lot easier, obviously, to not be in a job. But, you know, delivering children is one of the hardest jobs on the planet, isn't it? So... Good luck for you. Thank <laughs> you. Is it your first one? Is it your first child, Phil? It is my first one with uh, my present um, partner, yes. Okay. 
Um, so what we'll do then is we'll ask. I know, I know you said you watched a bit of the um, the Everton game in the cup lately. Um, it was a very good performance, we thought. And um, we thought we'd try and tie in maybe talking about the game, doing a normal episode kind of thing, but including you in in, in a similar vein and asking you your thoughts on the current team and, and the kind of job that Grant McCann's doing. Um, because obviously you know more than anybody the the pressures of being a manager and and the expectations of a fan base. Um, so first off, I just kind of wanted to ask you what 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 kind of job do you think? What, are you are you are you happy with the kind of job that Grant McCann's doing? Would you be pleased? Are you respectful as a manager of the, the kind of uh, style that we're playing at the minute, the results he's getting? I'm never I'm never one for um, um, shall we say being negative about managers because it's a difficult job. Full stop. Mm. Um, you know, so previous managers or former managers or managers that are out of work, casting aspersions on on anybody that's in work is not my style. And I don't think it should be anybody's style, to tell you the truth, because it's a difficult enough job. Uh, regardless of where you, where you go, which club you're at, every club's got its own issues. You know, every club's got its own challenges. Um, and Hull City being one of them as well. You know, your, your challenges on and off the field of play. Grant has been... Um, I think it's been he's been fantastic. I think um, I first bumped into Grant McCann when he was at Peterborough, and um, we used to take teams when I was at Southend United. We used to take teams uh, up to their training ground and vice versa, and we got a good relationship going. Um, it struck me as a, a very intuitive, very um, on hands-on kind of coach. Wanted to be out there with the players. Wanted to be feeling. Um, what they're feeling on the training ground first and foremost, but then management is a totally different game. And uh, I was very, I've got to say, I was very interested in him going to a club the size of Hull um, and the challenges that he would uh, he would he would face. But it has to be said, he's survived them. You know, he's he's still there, he's still in there, he's still fighting. Um, I watched his team against Everton. I thought it was a great opportunity. I've got to say it for Hull City to, to progress because. Rafa had gone into the game, I think, with one win in, in the last 12 yeah. uh, and a former Liverpool manager. So he was under immense pressure. And there was a lot there was a lot for Grant McCann to be seeing in his changing room about the opposition and about the negativity that was coming out of their changing room, you know. Oh. So, the, you know, I thought it was a good opportunity to catch Everton at the right time and maybe win the game. They did everything they possibly could, you know, to take it to extra time. To take any Premier League club to extra time is a... Is a, a challenge for a club outside the uh, the realms of the Premier League, and um, I thought Hull played exceptionally well. I thought they were a different class. I thought they looked together. I thought they had energy in the team. Uh, I thought they smelt um, a, a problem in the opposition's team, and they, they were ready for to take it. But it unfortunately didn't uh, evolve that way, and in, in they lost out in, in extra time, which is you know anything can happen in extra time, as we well know. Yeah, I mean, um, like you say. It, it, it can be obviously. I think to be a manager, you have to be incredibly resilient um, at times. Especially if you if you look at Grant McCann lately. Like obviously, when he joined us, we we, we played really well. We were on the brink of the playoffs um, in his first season. Come uh, you know Christmas time, going into January, and then it kind of uh, our form literally fell off a cliff from January onwards, and it was a really bad run of form. But obviously, coincided with the, uh, the sort of the start of the epidemic. So obviously, we had a, a big break, and then we came back from it, and we were we were still. You know, struggling to get results, and we we got relegated, and then, you know, you could have a, a lot of fans would have, well, were calling for his head kind of thing uh, in the summer, um, but he stayed with us, and, and and we've all even on this podcast last season, you know, he, he stayed strong, he came back, and he led us to a our first title in fifty five years, um, and then we've got 
you know, from from League One into the Championship, and and we we started maybe you know, barring the win at Preston away, we started quite. Um, we had a poor run of form, but but recently since the change in system, we, we we've sort of picked up a bit. I know we've we've not won in a few games now, but we've had COVID in the camp kind of thing, and it's kind of circumstances you've got to sort of try and take on board, uh, considering. Um, the extra pressures of, of what he's currently facing at the minute. I think maybe as fans, we're kind of guilty of just, you know, maybe letting emotions run the show at times. But um, definitely with that show at Evan, I think that this current system, this set of players, you know, they're all young. They're um, they're hungry for experience and for um, to be able to prove themselves. You know, you've got to look at the loan players like Longman and Deshaun Bernard, who were, who were, who were on loan from Premier League clubs, who were probably looking at, a, at either to push into their parent clubs or, maybe get a, a summer move somewhere else. But I, I, I think, you know, he's, he's, he's at times sometimes been justifiably criticised maybe. Because I'd, I'd like to ask you a question like regards to if you have sort of a specific uh, system or a way of playing, like obviously you will have a preferred formation or, you know, a style of player that you want to incorporate as a manager. Um, as... Like for you personally, if if your formation and system wasn't working, are, are you looking to change it or do you stick with it? Because I think the biggest problem that City fans have at the, at the moment, well, prior to the system change, was that we we were struggling, but we didn't look like we were actively trying to change anything. So I just wanted mm. to know, like, from a manager's perspective, what the thought process is. A lot of these, um, a lot of these young coaches. Um, I brought up into a technical world of football these days and there's nothing wrong with that at all. I think um, the modern day manager now is very fluid with regards to systems, you know, systems change, not just from match to match nowadays, they change during the course of the game. And um, I often said it when I was, when I was managing Hull, when I was managing whoever, um, you know, you, you do a certain freeze frame, if you like, on a, on a, on a TV screen or a video, or you're doing some kind of, you know, match footage for the players to pick up a little bit of information from them and how they're feeling and how they're thinking, and then let them know exactly how you're thinking and what you think of systems. Cause I think it's important that, and uh, I think the modern day footballer is now very akin to changes of formation during the course of a game. And that's not being disrespectful of a supporter when you don't see that change during the course of the game. I think, if you take, and I know we shouldn't be talking about uh, Leeds United on a whole city podcast, but if you take the example of what Bielsa brought to English football, and he, you know, he's 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 much revered as a as a head coach. He has a fantastic um, record and history. Uh, you know, even the likes of Pep Guardiola sing his praises and people like that. When you think about what he's brought to English football, it's almost man to man. It's almost um, there isn't a system. You just you're picking up your man and that's all it is too. You follow him everywhere he goes. Now, as far as I'm concerned, I get confused with that at times because I like a solid back four, I like a midfield in front of them. And then the rest of it, when you've got the ball, becomes more fluid when you've got people who can handle possession. And I think that's more the most important part of the modern day game. You get a player that can handle the ball in any tight situation, any one given situation, and you get five or six of them that can do that, the higher you go. System, it doesn't really matter what you play at. You know, it doesn't. It you can you can name your system at the start and say, right, we're playing three five two or whatever you want to say. But bottom line is, you very rarely stick to that during the course of the game. 
And I think, I'm afraid to say that, a lot of supporters hang the hat on the system as being the main failure to a, a, a game where you've lost, possibly. And it might be a lot of other things apart, apart from the system. It could be individual errors. It could be, you know, things that have gone on in the background that you don't know anything about that's gone on in the changing room. You know, I think there's a lot of stuff coming out in, in Arsenal's changing room that, you know, people are talking about Arteta being a great man manager now because he's handling really tight situations with individuals. All of these things lend themselves to, you know, what system do we do we want to play? Because, you know, at the end of the day, it's all about the... The um, I was going to say the welfare of the players, but it's it's a much coined phrase these days. It's all about the mental state, that the state of mind of the group of players that are going out on the field of play. And that's the reason why I mentioned uh, probably a good time to catch Everton and the Rafa situation, because I would have thought uh, the whole City change room would have been buoyant before the game. It wouldn't have been fearing Everton. It would have been very buoyant before the game and then looking forward to it. And I've always said that, you know, when you've got a group of players that are looking forward to games, it's much but much better than than when you've got a group of players that are fearing games. You know, if you're going into a game thinking we're gonna we're gonna get turned over and this that, and the other, you've got no chance. But I think where Grant was concerned, I think he did stumble upon a change of system, and uh, it certainly looked as if the players then, because of a run of, I would I would add it because of a run of results, the players looked like the system's better for them. And therefore, they were going into games looking forward to them. It was as simple as that for me, Ant. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree, to be fair. I mean, because uh, this is what I mean. It was really interesting to see sort of like a, a manager's perspective on it. Because, you know, like I said, us as fans, we can sometimes uh, probably let emotions run the show kind of thing. And we all, we all there's, you know, 20,000 people in that stadium think they could be a manager kind of thing. Um, but for me, like, obviously... We did change system and we won four on the bounce with it. So obviously with that, like you say, comes confidence. But since then, obviously we haven't won. So for me now, it's going to be interesting to see how um, how the players sort of respond to that. I mean, at the, at the minute, performances are looking quite decent. So, you know, we're not, we're not slumping to defeats like we were prior. Um, they're still fighting the game. We're still in it till pretty much the last minute and things like that. Um, but so basically the next question I was going to ask you is, so when a team is on a really bad run of form then and they're struggling to, to turn results into wins, what can you actually do in terms of your management style to, to, to sort of flip that dressing room around and, and, and try and get them back sort of motivated, um, you know, enthusiastic about the next game kind of thing? Because I can imagine it's really tough if you, you know, losing, losing, losing kind of thing. I think they, I think the most important part, um, and I believe they're still at Cottingham, is that right? Yeah. The training ground, yeah. I think the most important part of, of anybody preparing his team as a manager um, and you're going into a game where you're in a bad run of form, you're looking at individuals and, and collectives and you know people are looking over the shoulder instead of focusing on going forward. Uh, you're starting to get a little bit concerned about confidence levels, etc., etc. The most important part is the togetherness. And we, if, if, I, if, I, if I take it back to our successful team at Hull, um, you know, when we survived a, a relegation battle in the championship and then got promoted and then went into a Premier League where you knew it was going to be a relegation battle um, from minute one. But we started off in a fantastic vein of form. But I'm looking around at not just the players, not just the players. I've got to emphasise that. I'm looking around at, at the supporters first and foremost. And you're looking at supporters that are just happy to be there. 
you know, they're just happy to be in the in the Premier League, which is a lovely place to be, don't get me wrong. So in that respect, there wasn't that much pressure on us. You know, I was actually saying to the players, you can't you can't do anything wrong. It doesn't matter how well you play, how badly you play. This group, and I've, I've looked at the um, the gate attendance, and I think it was something like 24,300 24, was the average gate. And every whole city supporter was coming to that stadium, and they were enjoying themselves. They were they were coming for the spectacle. They were also coming because they wanted to try and win the game, of course. Nobody wants to lose a game of football, but I don't think the whole city supporters put us under any pressure whatsoever. So... You have to point that out to the players that you're going into games of football here and you are riding on the crest of a wave. It's a beautiful place to be and it's a fantastic time to be at Hull City. Just enjoy it. But then you look around the training ground and you look at the people on the periphery, you know. We had a couple that used to run Cottingham, uh, Brian and Paula, and they were part and parcel of the furniture. They were teas and coffees at six o'clock in the morning for anybody that was coming in at that time. Me, of course, first in six o'clock, there'll be a cup of coffee waiting for me on my desk. It's priceless that. People might be thinking I'm, I'm talking rubbish here. It's absolutely priceless that you create an environment at your training ground that people want to come to work. And that's the key word. They want to come to work, not to come to play. They want to come to work and, and try and improve. And I think we had that uh, down to a T, but I'm talking about the, the surrounding people not the players, not the manager, not the coaching staff. I'm talking about the supporters took care of themselves because they just looked forward to everything uh, that was thrown at, whether it be Arsenal or Liverpool or whether it be a Stoke City. It didn't matter. Um, it was in the Premier League. And then you're looking at the people that look after the players, you know, the, the drivers, you know, people that got drivers. And I'm thinking, whoa, hold on a second. We might be in the Premier League, but, we're, you know, we haven't become that important that we need somebody to drive us get get driving the car yourself and you know these kind of things to keep people firmly feet planted on the ground and realizing that you're going to work it's just it's as simple as it gets you're going to work and then you're picking your wages up for a good day's work end of story yeah i mean the thing is i think for for me at the moment, obviously, like like you, like you mentioned just then, when when you took us up to the Premier League, I think you know no fan really expected to have ever been in that situation. So like you say, we, we were there sort of for the ride, and we, we loved every second of it, and you know we didn't know the next time we could be there, kind of thing. Uh, but then obviously, um, following that, obviously Steve Bruce took us up a couple of times, and and then we we sort of hung about in the higher echelons of the Championship in in, in his tenure as well, and then. For me, I think maybe expectations of this fan base sort of jumped, and I don't know if it's kind of like a uh, like a generational thing, you know, like some of the younger fans who are used to seeing top end Championship Premier League football for a few years now expect that is is the norm kind of thing. Yeah. I think Grant yeah. McCann, in essence, are like I'm not <laughs> not fully blaming you for the extra pressure on Grant McCann right now, um, but at the minute, obviously, because fans want uh, well, well, kind of know how it's been. And how it currently is, sort of thing. So every defeat, sort of maybe is 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 met with extra negativity, uh, uh, extra criticism, and you know people compare him to the likes of you and Steve Bruce and and, and what's been I get, accomplished. I with get what you're saying, and I think it's a it's well worded. In, in you know, you're very polite in the way you're, you're saying your things. Um, as far as I'm concerned, I was sacked at the wrong time. Now every manager in the country is going to say that, but I was sacked at the wrong time. You know, coming into a ten game run. Uh, running and um, unfortunately a change of chairman. Uh, I thought Adam Pearson first time around was outstanding for me. 
uh, when he came back, I thought mm, he was always looking to maybe just looking for that that opportunity to get rid of me, um, which is a horrible place to be as a manager. You know, but bottom line is, if we had to survive the second year, we survived the first year and that created a, a pot of gold, basically, that you could go and spend. And I, I thought, you know, we brought one or two players in, we let one or two players go. The mentality of the ones that were let go weren't right. The ones that we brought in had to be right uh, for to keep us in the Premier League. But I'll, I'll, I'll say this and I'll re-emphasise this a number of times probably in this interview. I've, I'm a Sunderland supporter. Um by trade, if you want to call it, you know, by by definition, I was brought up in in uh, in South Shields, and I used to go and see Sunderland. Why didn't I go to see Newcastle? A lot of people ask me that question. Why didn't you go to see Newcastle? But it was just a fancied, um, you know, Sunderland as opposed to Newcastle. A couple of incidences that I'll not tell you about, but you know, my dad was a Newcastle supporter, my mother was a Sunderland supporter. This daft as that, um, and. Uh, I followed Sunderland and uh, then I realised they were the Bank of England in 1950 and we had big players, you know, Charlie Hurley and people like that in the early days, Len Shackleton. And then you realised how big the club was. And then you start going through, you know, relegation battles and, and promotion battles and stuff like that. And you're standing on the terraces and you're expecting to get entertained. A bit like you guys at the moment. You expect to get entertained, but you expect to win the game. And that's what it was to play for Sunderland, to support Sunderland. You expected performance he expected work and he, but he expected to win Newcastle's got exactly the same problem 100% you know it's it's horrendous at the moment in Newcastle because the bottom of the league in the in the uh, in the Premier League and yet they're the richest club in the world so they've got their own issues but the pressure of playing for a certain club is immense Hull City had that pressure I, I remember a guy come up to me in uh, in the pub the local pub I can't think of the name of the local pub in uh, North Ferriby where I lived, and um, he came in to me after a game one night, and we'd won the game 2-1, and uh, he squared up to me as if he was going to, as if he was going to sort me out, and I, I looked at this guy, and he's whole city through and through, and he went, do you realise what you've done at this, this place, and I went, go on, he said, you've given us the pride to go into cities all over the country and not expect to get turned over. You give us our pride back so we can go into these places now with our heads held high, chest puffed out, and we can go in there with an expectancy that we're going to win, that we've got a chance of winning because of the way you've approached the game, because of you, the way you've approached the challenge of managing Hull City. And I loved that. I absolutely loved the compliment. At first, I was a little bit concerned because he was a big lad, and if he had sorted me out, I wouldn't have been Hull City manager the following day, that's for sure. <laughs> but um, no, it was one of them where you um, you have to understand that, you know, you've got to put things into perspective. If Hull have been in the Premier League, they've had a dalliance with the Premier League on a couple of occasions, myself, Steve Bruce, etc., etc. And then the first thing that happens when you get relegated to the first division is you want to get rid of the manager. It's not always the answer. That's not always yeah. the answer. Um You've got to you've got to drill a little bit deeper into the situation to find out exactly what has gone on and what's right about the club, what's wrong about the club. The best thing about Hull City for me, you know, that I used to absolutely love the fact that the people support the club with with a passion. And and once you've got that, you've got you've you're halfway there. You're halfway there, but you've got to make the players realise that as a manager. Yeah, I mean. For, for us, I mean, I, I, I think I can pretty much speak for every single Hull City fan uh, that, that exists right now, um, that you really did, like, 
I, I mean, personally, I want to thank you for, for the best day of my life supporting Hull City in that uh, playoff final against Bristol City. It was, it was something that I never thought I would see. No, I, I've been told stories about my family who have supported City for generations kind of thing. And they were, they were used to us playing in the basement of football and playing teams like Kettering Town in the league and things like that. And you, you took us to, to an entirely new sort of, you know, you, you basically smashed us through a rock ceiling that we, that I thought. And, and just, just, you know, just to interrupt you there, just, it wasn't just me, you know, there was a lot no, of good no, people. Yeah. No, you, you and the, 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 the players have gone down in folklore history, you know, the, 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 the staff that were there as well, that just that time and your period at the club, I mean, even, even the Peter Taylor range just before and sort of that, that ascendancy from that stage of Hull City's history, um, <laughs> It's just it, it will probably never be replicated. Well, it won't be for a long time, I can't imagine. Uh, and so I just think that every City fan would, would like to thank you for what you did for our club. Thank uh, you. And I think we'll talk about your time at City because um, obviously you came in uh, and we were in quite a precarious situation. Obviously, you took over from Phil Parkinson. Uh, we were fighting relegation in the Championship that season. Um, I think I went to Derby away, which I think was your first or one of your first games you took over and we drew 2-2. I think I was there that game and, and 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 the team just seemed to be completely revitalized and completely different and so what did you do then when you came in what what did you change from from obviously the the first half of the season because we saw um, nowhere it's a it's a good question it's a good question because you don't you don't particularly go in there to deliberately change something you know you go in there you look around you find what's wrong What's going wrong? What, why is this team not performing? Um, you, you you make sure that you keep the rates, you know, and that that's that can be individuals, it can be, you know, it could be the training ground, it could be the routine, it could be anything. Um, I love the training ground at Cottingham. I thought it was private. Um, I thought we had uh, a facility that we could expand. It could, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd been involved in a in a backroom staff at Bolton Wonders with Sam Allardyce, and we had a a very similar place um, training ground at Exton. Uh, which was seven, eight mile away from the stadium. So it was sort of se a separate entity, but it was, it was private. You could get on with your business, as it were, you know. And sometimes that business can be, um, it can be hard, you know. It can be, can be brutal. It can be, um, you know, you have to get a hold of players sometimes. You have to make sure that you've got the right group of players, that they're all pulling in the same direction. And I thought one or two of them weren't. Um, but you find that out at the training ground on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, Monday to Friday. Come the Saturday... That's your, that's your window of opportunity as a group of supporters. You only see the team for, if it's one game a week, you only see them for 90, 90 minutes. And that's that's a window of opportunity for you guys to see, well, what are these people doing for five, six days? Are they are they preparing properly? Are they, you know, and sometimes you see preparation on a Saturday. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you just see um, individuals playing football together. But other times you see organisation, you see hard work, you see, you see the sort of the DNA of the manager. And it comes out on that on that ninety minute window of opportunity, as I say. But um, I, what did I change? I don't think Phil Parkinson for one minute was a bad coach or a bad manager. I think he was at the time he was one of the the most um, sought after uh, lower league managers at Colchester United. He had done a, done a fantastic job, and I think he was in a shortlist of about four or five managers at the time when he got the job. But he also had four or five clubs that he could choose from. And um, so that, that just shows you what you were getting. Uh, but then it didn't start well. And, and and the next thing you know, I get a phone call from Adam Pearson saying, will you come and help Phil on the training ground? And I'm like, 
surely it's Phil that phones me to ask me if I can come and help him, not not the owner. Yeah, I've, I've had words with him, you know, this, that and the other. And I wasn't quite, um, I wasn't quite enamoured by the invite. So I picked the phone up to Phil straight away. And as you said, you do know what's going on behind the scene. Yeah, can we meet? And we met at the, the hotel in North Ferriby. Um, and we had a good three hours, four hours. And I, as you said, I'll be on the training ground tomorrow. It was exactly what I wanted to hear. So I had, uh, you know, tick the box of the manager more importantly than the owner. Uh, and don't get me wrong, that's, that is important as well. Um, but when Phil, uh, I d when I when I didn't keep him in in work, and that's that's the crux of the matter. I was assistant manager or first team coach uh, with Colin Murphy as well, and and when I didn't keep him in work, I felt disappointed. Don't don't get me wrong, I was really disappointed, bitterly disappointed myself that I hadn't kept him in work. So anyway, consequently, when you then take the reins as a caretaker manager. And it was a joint effort, if you remember rightly. Colin was in the background and he was doing his bit. And what a great experienced guy I could I could draw me, you know, some kind of experience from. Um, and deep down behind the scenes, I knew Colin didn't want the job. But in front of the cameras, you know, to the media, he was telling everybody he wanted the job. Uh, that was all part and parcel of his game. But he was a great guy, fantastic guy, and knew how to manage a, a changing room full of... Um, I, I, I'm... I was going to say troublesome players, but characters. I would say more characters. You know, you're John Parkins of this world. You know, we had match winners in the changing room, but he could also lose a game out the changing rooms in, in the modern-day media because that was gaining momentum left, right and centre. You know, people had, you know, social media outlets that can find out exactly what you're doing at any one given time. So John had to, you know, start towing the line, as it were. If not, he's going to take us down. Um, so there were certain things that had to be addressed and I thought we did and I thought we did um, successfully in that in that period where you know it was a hell of a, a battle for survival but that last game or second last game I think it was at uh, Cardiff away um, when we won 1-0 and we survived in the, in the championship that, that that's as that's as big a day for me as it was what it was at, uh, at Wembley playing against Bristol City. And I don't mean that disrespectfully at Wembley or Bristol City or the, or the Championship. I'm just saying surviving in the Championship and then meeting the new owners, you know. And it just moved so quickly after that. It was like it was like we were on a, a train that was going fairly fast and I, I was driving it at, the, at that time and I just had to keep it on track, you know. I had to keep on the lanes. But um, it, it was a difficult period for everybody at home because, you know, new management then, new ownership... Um, you were probably thinking, what next? Uh, there was all sorts of things going on in the background, but we managed to steady it and uh, and get it on the right track in that season that we were promoted. Yeah, I mean, obviously, like you said, you kept us up that first season. The second season, we end up being promoted to the Premier League when we were, I think, the, the bookies' favourites to go straight down. Um, yeah. Can I ask you, and hand on heart honesty, what were the club's aims that season? What were the what? What were the club's aims that season? So, so was it just to stay up and we somehow just sort of rode a, a consistency wave and got promoted? Or did you genuinely have the, the, the aim to get us promoted that year? Paul Duffin and, um, you know, the, the, owner, the ownership of the, of the football club, you know, they, they came to me and we went to um, a hotel near Scunthorpe, Pines, you know, Forest Pines Hotel. And uh, we had a, a meeting before 
and they were talking about a three-year game plan and that that went public and i know a lot of you guys will, will know that story but that was the game plan they they wanted promotion to the premier league but it was a three-year plan and uh, that took a lot of pressure off me that took an awful lot of pressure off me because at the end of the day uh, i had put enough pressure on myself to try and get promoted that first year i knew survival in the championship by the skin of your teeth the previous year you don't want that you don't want that feeling again you know it's a horrible feeling it's um you know you, you've got a good group of players coming in day in day out willing to roll roll their sleeves up and wear the shirt with pride and all of them things and you know to be involved in a relegation battle again would have been a disaster and it started off that season it it didn't start off the best of ways i mean nine or ten games in i think we were just hovering above the relegation zone. And then we just went on this this unbelievable run. And I always remember the turning point. We we played two games on the bounce. I think we played Southampton away and then Preston North End away. Yeah, we got we, battered both games, didn't we? Yeah, we <laughs> got absolutely that. battered. The Preston game could have been a lot more. I think it was three. And uh, Southampton was five, wasn't it? Yeah. And um, I had brought JJ Koch in. I brought Henrik Pedersen in. I brought a couple of big names in from... Premier League football only because of my contacts at Bolton and uh, the, we were raising the profile of the football club but the standard of performance wasn't being raised you know so now you've got an issue as a manager you know when you've brought in bigger players who everybody at the club you know including the likes of Nicky Barmby are going come on you know who are these you know what are they he what are they here for if they're not going to contribute then they're no good to us and it literally it became that you know it became a, a sort of a, a local a local boy telling me, without saying them words, but telling me in no uncertain terms, if Ian Pumley's weight, you know, we can't be we can't be carrying a JJ Kocha, we can't be carrying a, a Henrik Pedersen. And he's absolutely spot on. But the one thing about Nicky, Nicky just every time he played, in the early days, he couldn't, the early days of, of my tenure, he couldn't really play 90 minutes week in and week out or Tuesday, Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday. So we had to make the pitch smaller. And that's what we did. We started designing ways of playing, um, starting from Boz Meyer, who I thought was one of the best distributors of a, of a football um, in his hands or from the from the deck. We had to make the pitch smaller, so we started condensing areas of, of the pitch, getting the second ball and playing from there. And Nicky was just quite simply brilliant at that. So we made the pitch about, you know, 60 by 40 as it were as opposed to 100 yards by 100, you know 75 wide and people might ask you how do you do that and football people will know what i'm talking about when you make the pitch smaller you know you, you do the modern day game is so open and everybody's taking a leaf out of man city's book and people like that um that i'm not sure that even the likes of nicky barmy could survive in them you know in them circumstances but at the same time that's up to us to make our tactics to fit Nicky. And when we could get him out Saturday, Tuesday, then we've got a chance of winning games of football because he was quite simply too good for it. He was, he was brilliant. He was top class. So that's part and parcel of what we planned during the course of that, that development of us as a, as a team. And, uh, you know, signing players like um, the lad from Manchester United. What's his name? Um, Fraser, Campbell. Fraser Campbell. Fraser Campbell was just a great sign. And Caleb Fallan, Caleb Fallan had the same kind of pace and dynamics as Fraser Campbell, but Caleb liked to come short and Fraser liked to go long. So we had little combinations that could, you know, upset defences, upset the opposition. And, and we had bravery and we had strength of character. We had lots of things 
that you could admire about work. Uh, but the most important thing was that halfway through that season, we were mid-table and, and nudging at the, at the doors of the playoffs. So we were gaining in momentum. We were gaining in, in character. We were certainly gaining in confidence. And then uh, all of a sudden, another board meeting. And uh, it wasn't three years all of a sudden. It was one year. We have to get promoted this year. So um, that's quite, quite simply how it went that year. Because that's interesting because I thought, obviously, because as fans, we don't really understand, like, obviously, it's not always made public and it's not always obvious what what the club's aims are. I mean, you've obviously got exceptions in your huge clubs like your Man, Man Cities and that, that that need to win the league or win trophies kind of thing. But for a club the size of us and um, that, that, that's not really been in those situations uh, very often... Um, I, I, I was always interested to know kind of like what, what, what that planning was throughout the season or if it changed kind of thing. Because obviously, if you've just survived relegation, the last thing that the fans expect is to then get promoted the next season. So it was it was, it was was phenomenal and it was a great season. Um, but but like, we've, like we've been talking Ant, about, about systems being fluid, I think your plans have to be as well. You have to be transient. You know, you have to move with a batch of results, not just one, not a knee-jerk reaction. But I... Um, I, I keep on going back, and I will do to these these games where this sounds silly, but I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you uh, the story. Me and Phil Huff, uh, who was club secretary at the time, but he was in control of a lot of things that I didn't think the club secretary should have been in control of. I think it was more a director of football situation. And you might ask, what's the difference? Well, a club secretary, an old-fashioned club secretary, used to handle everything that really was you needed to get out the way, you know, you needed to get any little issues and problems out the way so that the players could just go onto the field of play and, and perform. And ticket situations, you know, wives, families, you know, um, you know where people were sitting, all, all of them, what I would class as incidental things for a, for a manager or a player on match day. Phil was brilliant at it, absolutely brilliant. Anyway, long story short, in this um, two-game scenario where Southampton away and then Preston away, um, something as silly as uh, me finding my family were in the away end at Preston North, North End, running the risk of being basically attacked, being hurt, being whatever. Uh, I found that out and I, th I thought, there's something wrong with the club here. There's something, it doesn't sound like I'm making too much sense here, but you'll understand what I mean. There's something going on in the background that I need to stop and I need to put right so that the club can move forward. And it really was an incidental, a basic, um, a running of the football club that had nothing to do with the game. But you have to get your club in order. And anybody with Phil Huff's experience, uh, this should never have happened. You know, I find, I find my family, Brian Horton's family were in a different place. Uh, Brian, I think Brian Horton's family were in the front of the director's box. Now, if anything, that's where your family should be as the manager of the club. But anyway, yeah. long story short, I had it out with them next day. Me and him went toe to toe. Um, the owner got involved, the chairman got involved, and it was a revamp, a revamp of the running of the football club. And from that moment, I'm not saying that was the reason, but from that moment, it was almost like a weight had been lifted. Everybody started realizing that I was the manager, I was in charge. When I said something needed to be done, it was done. And uh, and my word, when you get them. Them things right in a club, you'll be you'll be amazed at what happens on the field of play. Yeah, I mean, it's like you said, that's another 
because I wouldn't have even considered anything like that. Because to me, obviously, I would assume that you know your owners, your your, your directors of footballs, anybody who's technically in charge of the club in, in terms of the affairs and, and off-field things, um, you would always assume is like sort of the the, the final word on things. But because for, for for most people, I would imagine that the manager is only expected really to manage the football team kind of thing. So it's interesting to say that that you can you can actively influence how the clubs run and how, how to change it if it's not working. Because like you say, it's, at the end of the day, if something in the club is wrong, um, it needs to change, doesn't it? Because otherwise it's going to affect your job and the way but that the you... But the point I'm trying to say, Ant, was I shouldn't have had to do it, but I did because I found out. I found out through a circumstance. Yeah. And and if things are not going on in the in the club, if you're a manager of a club, that's the word for me. If you're a head coach of a club, it's a different argument. If you're the manager of a club, you you should be in control of the director of football, the uh, the sporting director, the head of recruitment, um, the the club secretary. Everybody should be answerable to you, and that's what I wanted because I had Brian Horton behind me, and Brian was driving this as well. You know, Brian was saying you need to make them decisions, not not somebody else, and he he was absolutely spot on. Uh, call it old fashioned if you want to, but he was absolutely spot on. You could actually call Hull City at the time an old-fashioned club because of the way we managed it, but it was bang on, and that's why we got promoted. Yeah, I mean that's pretty much. But I mean, we're not going to complain at that. You got us some of the best memories that we'll ever have as City fans. So thank you for doing that. <laughs> uh, we'll touch on the uh, on, on the Premier League then. Um, obviously, uh, before we go on to some questions from from some of our listeners and that. Um, I mean, I personally, I don't know about the other lads on here right now, but my expectations for that season wasn't high. But like you say, the fans just wanted to be there. They wanted to have the experience. You wanted to see us go toe-to-toe with some of the best players in the world, uh, some of the biggest clubs in the country in, in terms of a league fixture instead of the cup. You know, we, we were equal to them on the pitch for 90 minutes. Um, and then the start that we had and how well we played and, and being top of the table and like, you know, players like Giovanni that were just lighting up the league and, Managing to 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 bring in you know the likes of Ian Ashby and Boas Mile who have been in all four divisions and Andy Dawson for example that tackle on Theo Walcott of the Emirates which is probably one of our most famous ever wins, um, you've managed to get players that that I mean this is credit to them as well obviously and and and, and their character and being able to adapt to different situations but to take these players through the football league pyramid and then make them I mean more than uh, a competitive match for, for some of the world's best players in the Premier League. I mean, you, you must have took immense pride sort of watching them do that on the pitch on a day-to-day basis. Well, I've always thought, um, you know, as a as a player who didn't come into football until after an apprentice electrician role at, um, you know, on the banks of the team, I didn't come into football until 19, 20-year-old. And I always worried, you know, I always wondered about... The recruitment scenario at, at every football club, you know, how does it work? And I'll, I knew Sunderland's because um, I got an, in, you know, an invite for a trial. The reason why I'm telling you this is, um, the only reason I'm saying it for is, how much luck is involved in, in recruitment? How much luck is involved in, you know, passing a trial as a kid, uh, getting accepted in a football club? How much luck's involved, but how much hard work's involved? And I think it's a bit of both. But the luck side of it, you know, for somebody like, as you said, Ian Ashby, to play in all four divisions was quite phenomenal. It's quite phenomenal, that, because if you said when he was scouted as a young lad, what division would he play in? Somebody would have said fourth division, and that would have been it. But then he goes third, then he goes second, then he goes first. How how does And it's only down purely and solely to mentality. 
if the mentality of that individual is not right, there's not a chance. But then you've got to be in the right place at the right time. And Hull City was the right place for Ash. I'm saying for Bose Mayo. Bit different for a goalkeeper, would you agree? Bit different. Mm. Uh, I yeah. mean, to an extent, maybe, yeah. I mean, I think Boaz was... Um, I mean, he was. I think he'll always go down as one of our best keepers. But I think, obviously, the the caliber of of um, opposition that he's coming up against in terms of you know like regular world internationals and people who play for the country kind of thing that have won trophies and that. Um, I think maybe for a goalkeeper, it would be extra pressure. And I don't know if you guys agree with me, but I, I think I think the fact that he managed to jump up the leagues was was quite. Uh, I think well, astounding. I've just, I've just, you, I lost you there. Were you asking the oh. question to the other guys, Ian? No, I just, I, I, I just said I don't know if them three agree with me. I, I think it'd be extra pressuring for a goalkeeper at the top level to, to have gone through sort of them leagues and and, and can Maybe. keep that consistency league by league. Because obviously, but if you look at the, if the technical side of of Boaz Myhill was was very good, uh, distribution was very good. So he's probably coming into the Premier League at the right time. You know, you're going through that transient period of football being a uh, you know, a, not route one, but uh, it's more of a direct game to a game that's very, very technical now. And and Bose was probably be at the start of that. And we were encouraging, you know, we thought, you know, the likes of Sam Ricketts, Nathan Doyle, who both played right back for us, uh, Andy Dawson, I thought we were technically good enough to handle the ball. Michael might have been a little bit of a struggle, Michael Turner, but Anthony Garner came in then. Um, who, who else did we have? Wayne Brown, we had. Uh, we had uh, Maya Stephen Mayakolo. One or two of the centre halves that we had wouldn't have been at the top level in terms of distribution and technique, but at the same time had a good mentality for to stop the opposition from playing. So when you, I think when you look at, you know, what we achieved with the likes of Ian Ashby playing at the highest level, I think you know going back to what you were saying, system wise, system wise, it suited Ash because we protected them. System-wise, it suited Andy Dawson and, and the two fullbacks who, who would be the ones that could get exposed, if you think about it, you know, with wingers, et cetera, et cetera. They could get exposed, but we made sure, even at Arsenal away, we said to Giovanni, you're not playing the 4-3-3 now, you're playing, you know, you're stopping the opposition's fullback for, for getting at Andy Dawson, which he did a great job for about 60 minutes until we released him and he scored that worldie. Um, so there's, there's certain things that you, you look at um, the players that we had at the football club, um, they were playing above themselves, you could say. But at the same time, what's what's above themselves? You know, why can't they play in the Premier League? The the most alarming thing, or the most surprisingly pleasant thing, that was that we all did it together. So we all got promoted together, and we were all going into the Premier League in the, into the unknown. The likes of, you know, Dean Marnie and people like that, who never really played there. And uh, surprisingly, we we were galvanised by it, you know. Surprisingly, we, we we sort of regrouped and said, "What's the fear?" You know. But I think one of the one of the key. A lot of people ask me about the Arsenal game, the Spurs game. We we're very lucky in the Spurs game. There's no doubt about it. I think it was something like 23, 24 shots they had, uh, and Boz Mile had an absolutely outstanding game. And then the little little Brazilian pops up with a, again a great free kick. Uh, and they all, everyone remembers that, and everybody remembers the Arsenal win. But the West Bromwich Albion away win, yes. we were absolutely. If any of you guys were in the game, we were absolutely backs to the wall, tin helmets for 25, 25, 30 minutes in the first first part of the game. We were, Boz was pulling saves off. They were hitting the crossbar. The posts were clearing them off the lane. 
the supporters behind the goal must have been thinking this is gonna this is gonna be a landslide. And we won the game. I think we won the game three 0 You did. And it was one of them where I don't know whether we rode well luck at the right time or whether we just thought we've got nothing to worry about here. But at the same time, we ended up winning six out of the first nine games. It was just I don't know. It was just absolutely fantastic. A great place to be and certainly a great club to manage at that time. Did you did, <clears throat> did you find yourself pinching yourself when you saw you did you ever think you would be a, a manager of a team top of the Premier League, let alone Hull City? Well, <laughs> you never you never know how your career is going to go, do you? Um, you always, I think, you, my beliefs are that, you know, I was an optimistic, uh, always have been, um, glass half full, as it were. You try and put that into people. If it's not in them, it's very, very difficult to put it into them until mm. something positive happens to their lives. And then you have the argument of whether... You know, did they, was that meant to be, or within the right place at the right time? There's all sorts of things to to analyze. I mean, you're asking a guy who employs psychologists at Bolton Wanderers, and some of the stuff that we did there. You know, we went if you if you analyze what we did at Bolton Wanderers, we went from a fourth division to Europe. Um, mm. When you think about it, I left the club in 2004, 2005 to go to Derby County, and we had just qualified with with our league position in the Premier League, which was sixth top. We qualify for Europe. So what you can do with a group of players and what's going on between the ears is the probably the most important part. But we made sure that if, you know, we talk about leaving no, sto no, no stone unturned, if you are physically prepared, if you are mentally prepared, you've got a chance. If you haven't got the technicality, then you're in trouble. So we must have had a, a level of technicality in my team. But we were physically, I mean, I'll guarantee you, um, well, I don't know if you know the stats, but we traded at 1.8 injuries per week in that season in the Premier League. When you've got a squad of 25, 1.8, you're going to have headaches picking a team for oh. sure. Mm. But the point I was going to say is you were strong, you were physically capable, and we, we were ready, we were prepared, you know, and that, that is important. When some managers, you're hearing them now, they can't get their best team out. I know COVID's a big a big problem at the moment, but some of them have got five, six, seven injuries every week in a squad of 25. It's like 30, 33% of the squad. We had 1.8 in 25 every week. Yeah, it's, it's funny actually, because I don't remember us having many, many injuries now you've mentioned it. Um, we always seem to have a strong side every game. It was, it was very rare. We were missing a key player. Um, but I, I think what I take back from the, uh, the Premier League side definitely was that we seem to have a mix of players that really understood the club and what sort of um, what was needed to get results at the time. But then obviously you, you you recruited well in the sense that you brought the likes of, you know, you, you brought Giovanni back. I mean, a, a, a key starter to that really is bringing Dean Windass back. Um, obviously he he's whole city through and through. So he was sort of the catalyst, I think, in, especially in that first season to stay up. But having the likes of Dean Windass and then Giovanni in the same team is just like, you know, it, it doesn't really make sense on paper, but somehow on the pitch it did. I know Dino didn't feature that much in the Premier League because um, obviously we had Marlon King, etc. Um, but then you've got, got the likes of Ryan France, um, who who we signed from Alfreton Town in, in, in the non-league when we were in Division 3 back then, um, who was also mixing it in the Premier League with some of the greats. And I think what you managed to do, what you and your, your, your coaching staff, that set of players at the time, you, you were a unit, you were together and, and and it's so important to go into games where you're facing the likes of Manchester United at Old Trafford and, and Arsenal at the Emirates 
where you've got to go into that and, and, and trust each other and, and have a, a mutual respect for everybody that's on the pitch. Everyone knows the job. And I well, think that... That's a good point, Ant, you know, because mutual respect is, is important. And I think the most important part, when you mentioned Manchester United away, my, my head flashes straight to it. 4-3, four, 4-3 three, four, three defeat. Yeah. Um, now, when four, you think one. about it, 4-3 defeat, the first question that gets asked me in a press conference afterwards was, you must be very proud of your team today. And I... I I've just jerked back the way I jerked back there, and I went proud of me, proud of my team. What are you, what are you talking about? We're the first team to score three goals at Old Trafford in seven years. Now that, when you sit back and think about it, thanks very much, but we haven't won the game. We haven't got a point. We haven't got anything from the game, and uh, and I think that's that's the thing about respect. I don't think we were respected enough when we first started, and that's the reason why we won six out of the first nine. And when teams did start respecting us, that's when we found it tough. You know, people were saying, by the way, if you let these play, they can. And you've got to fight for every ball because they want it, you know, they want it badly. And so all of that was was part and parcel of the opposition's preparation. But the most important thing for me was, you know, that we were we will win. It doesn't matter win, lose or draw. We wore the shirt with pride. And I think the only day that we didn't wear the shirt with pride was when we were 4-0 down at half-time at Man City. And hence the reason why I did the talk. <laughs> I feel like you know that question was coming. That's why you put mm. that in there. All day long. I, that's that's the beauty of it, Ant. I mean, a lot of people want to know the, the reasons and the whys and the wherefores. I've got no qualms about answering questions about it because I, I know why I did it. Uh, and I hope the whole City fans did as well. Um, I mean, to be fair, I mean, obviously, like the second season didn't kind of obviously didn't go the way that any of us wanted, and especially not yourself. And I mean, like you said at the beginning, um, I, I, I do think it was the wrong time. Um, with 10 games to go, we might as well have seen it out and and and, and not really. I, I feel like the club admitted um defeat at that time and just accepted going down. Um, I think all city fans would have liked to have seen you at least seen this, the rest of the season out. Um, for, for especially with what you'd um, accomplished with the side, um, you I think you deserve that minimum, uh, especially even another go in the championship for me. But, um, like I said at the bit uh, before we started this talk about City, I think all City fans, you, you are literally heralded as one of you know the greatest managers that we've had. Um, we we fully respect everything you did for the club and and and, and the heights that you took us to, uh, the memories that we've got. We've had some phenomenal games and and um, achievements, uh, multiple trips to Wembley probably started by yourself, you know, with the, the playoff final. Um, so what we'll do now then is we'll move on to, we've got quite a few questions from some of the listeners that that have, um, that, that want to know sort of picky brains kind of thing. So I'll come, what we'll do is we'll go around in a, a clockwise fashion. Then we'll start with you, Will. Um, if you've got a question that, that somebody sent in or that you want to ask yourself, just pop it over. <clears throat> yeah, sure. Um, um, I was thinking this ball to Al first and Sport. I said, who is probably your favourite personality who you've managed at Hull? Um, I know there'll be a few. I feel like you can have a few contenders. Yeah. yeah. Favourite personality is a good, it's a good way of asking the question. Not great, greatest player or best player. Favourite personality. You know, you've got to look at Windus for that one. Um, for different reasons For from Ian Ashby. Uh, when I when I talk about personalities in the change room, the personality of, of the team, I thought, was more Ian Ashby. Uh, and what I mean by that is never say die, yeah. roll the sleeves up, uh, basic kind of player, no A's and graces, no frills and spills. 
uh, and then the odd occasion something might happen that you wouldn't expect it. Ash would do something that you wouldn't expect. And that was Hull City, you know, we'd have a little bit of magic in Giovanni or, or Nicky Palmby or whoever um, that would bring a little bit of magic. But bottom line is, you know, I always I always say um, to a lot of people, I had a I had the group in one day uh, and I think it was a Sunday. It, well, it was a Sunday. I know for a fact it was a Sunday because of the reason why I'm telling you the story. And uh, it was a cold winter's day in November. And uh, they're all sitting in the in the canteen area at Cottingham, wondering what what was happening. We'd been beaten the day before, and uh, I just wanted them in on the Sunday just to talk. Uh, I wanted to show them video evidence of what I was seeing. Uh, I wanted to show them video evidence of what I wanted uh, from previous games, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I'm sitting talking to a group of players inside. And Giovanni's got more coats and jackets and jumpers and tracksuit bottoms and, and all sorts of stuff on than you'll ever believe. Um, and he's sitting there and I'm thinking, I'm not going to get through this kid unless I can point something out to him. And I know Giovanni was a preacher. I don't know if you guys knew that, but um, no? Giovanni used to go to uh, his own church uh, on a Sunday and he used to preach uh, in his own religion. And I got wind of this and I thought to myself, well, that's more or less what I'm doing. I'm actually doing that now. I'm I'm actually bringing them in on a Sunday and I'm preaching to them about what we need to do to put this right. Uh, and I, I had it out with Giovanni there and then, you know. This was my church. The the training ground was my church and this is where we go on a Sunday if we don't perform on a Saturday. And I think I got my point of view across. Ian Ashby certainly knew what I was talking about. Dean Winder certainly knew what I was talking about and Nicky Barnby <laughs> certainly knew what I was talking about. So in terms of personality, I would have said... Uh, I loved working with Dean because he had a great um, attitude towards the game. Fantastic smile on his face, regardless, in the face of adversity. But um, probably Ian Ashby personified the team more than anybody. No, no worries. Joel, have you got any questions? <clears throat> yeah, so we know the club tried to sign Michael Owen um, in your time. So we're thinking... Um, were there, were there any other players that you tried to sign that got away? <clears throat> any players that got away, the only, the biggest one that I can say, and you'll know this one, is um, Bobby Zamora. Um, mm. Zamora. And I've gone down, I think I've gone down, just two seconds, I'm just running out of uh, battery, I'm just going to plug in. I was, <laughs> um, <laughs> I've gone down to saying this, I did the, um, I did the, uh, the pro license diploma last year and um they were asking questions like that you know they were talking about experiences that i'd had at whole city and i i gave the um the report on bobby zamora when i got him off the train from london and i took him to swanland and i took him to one or two of the fishing resorts you know the fishing um places that you can take them to because that's all he was into you know away from football that's all bobby wanted to do and when i took him there and he got on the train back after about three or four hours of visiting Hull. Um, I knew it was I knew he was sold. I knew he wanted to come, but I wasn't too sure about the agent and, and how much it was going to cost at that time. So when I got to the nitty-gritty of that of that argument, as it were, I went to my chairman uh, and I just said it's going to cost us this much. And uh, he said, do it if you want to do it. So I went back to Brian and Steve Parkin at the time. 
and this is the the part where the diploma was wanting to know my idea on the game uh your sales pitch if you want to call it your your how you impress upon a backroom staff that have got more games under their belt as managers than what you have you know Brian Horton was in the thousand game club uh, as a manager and Steve Parkin had about three or four three or four hundred himself and how do I impress my opinion on them about Bobby Zamora when the option was uh, Jan Venegor of Hesselink and Josie Altidore, so two for one, as it were, and the the figures mounted up that the two for one, the two would have been cheaper as well in terms of the um, the financial side of the game. Um, unfortunately, I didn't do it well enough, and them two um, managed to convince me that them the, the two other players were better than Bobby Zamora, uh, or better options, shall we say? Now it's easy to argue in hindsight uh, to say that you know Josie Altidore, we got him at the wrong time. Uh, probably you would say Jan, Jan Venegor of Hesselink would probably got him at the end of his career at the wrong time. Um, but I thought Bobby Zamora would have would have carried us into the final third with quality and kept us there longer so that the defenders would get more of a breather on the halfway line because we were playing more football in the opposition's final third. That was my theory. I, I allowed them to, to shoot me down and I'll never, ever fault them for it because they were priceless for me. They were brilliant uh, as a backroom staff. Um, but I allowed them to talk me out of it and we went for them too instead of Bobby Zamora. So he's the one that got away. I forgot about Zamora to be fair. Uh, Nathaniel? Uh, this is a question from Leo Shakespeare. He wants to ask if uh, Sam Allardyce was ever uh, an influence um, for you and um, maybe uh, is there anyone else in the game that you go to for advice? Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's no secret that I, I worked with Sam. Um, and again, the beauty of Sam is you don't work for him, you work with him. Um he emphasised that upon me the first time I met him. A lot of people thought we played together uh, in a, a team at Bolton, but it, that wasn't the case. Phil Neal actually let him go, um, having just lost out at Wembley. And Sam went across to America for a, one of his last years and uh, came back with lots of ideas about coaching and management. Um, that I then came to Bolton Wanderers, uh, so we missed out on each other. Uh, when, we did, when we did come across each other at Blackpool, I was a player coming to the end of my career and Sam just became the manager with um, Bobby's, Bobby Saxton uh, as assistant manager. And, uh, what a great guy he was. He had, he had enough managerial acumen about himself as well. Uh, but where Sam was concerned, Sam influenced me um, at how, how good he was with a group of players, how intelligent he was, how ahead of the game he was. Um, you know, a lot of people think that Sam was a big hard centre half, and that's the way he managed his changing rooms and you know, head button people and stuff like that. It was absolute <laughs> rubbish. The most important thing where Sam was concerned was getting the information, uh, and knowing the right information and getting it across to the players, and that's what he used to do on a on a regular basis. So he did influence me in terms of my managerial style. Um, but I would never ever say in a million years I'm anything like Sam. I'm 100% uh, Phil Brown, and I think Sam Allardyce is 100% Sam Allardyce. So, yeah, I mean, I think um, I think you can tell because um, obviously, with working with Sam, like you say, you, you surely will have picked up. I mean, he's one of the most experienced managers 
in, in English football at the minute, isn't he? So you could have got advice and influence from far worse, I suppose. Um, we've got a, um, a question from a, another Hull City podcast. This is the Tigers. Sorry, Aunt, Aunt, I think at the end of that question, I think at the end of that question, he asked if anybody else influenced me in the, without a shadow of a doubt, Brian Horton. Um, oh, yeah. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't not answer the question without saying that Brian had a big, big part to play in the way I managed Hull City, um, and I, I thought he was, I thought he was outstanding for me. Steve Parkin was outstanding for me as well. Don't get me wrong, but Brian became very, very close as a friend on and off the field of play. You know. Um, and uh, yeah, it would be remiss of me not to mention Brian in that. No, that's fine. Um, so we've got another um, Hull City podcast. Uh, it's the Tigers Down Under, the, the good friends of the pod. Um, they've asked, what was the hardest element of football management that you needed to adapt to to make the step from Championship to the Premier League? Uh, probably the part that um, eventually got rid of me, I think. Um Understanding how it was, you know, it wasn't at a time where social media is anywhere near what it is now, but it was coming. Uh, there's no doubt about it. You know, you're talking about 10, 12 years ago, uh, rec understanding, rec understanding and recognising what social media and the power of social media had over players, first and foremost. But then the influence that it could have on your change room and the influence it, it will have on your club eventually if you don't control it. Um I uh, I was probably at that cusp, if you like, of um, social media becoming a big problem uh, in the game. And, and I didn't really help our cause by exposing the change room with a half-time team talk. That's what I was trying to, that's what I'm trying to get at, you know. Uh, so the, the biggest adaptation I should have made or could have made would have been to understand that it not, it's not just the support on the terraces anymore. You've got the keyboard warriors, what everybody calls them. You've got people behind the scenes that influence uh, without even showing their face. And um, and not just that, you've got owners, chairman, directors who are influenced by it as well. So the game is, it is without a shadow of a doubt, from the days of 11 v 11, kicking a, a bag of air around um, and um, cutting your head when you head the ball and stuff like that. Them days were well and truly gone and the modern day phenomenon that's around at the moment is just a different game. Uh, so not adapting to that, I think, was probably one of my biggest flaws. That's fine. Uh, William? Um, bear with me. I'll just try the questions again that I had. Um, are there any sort of, well, are there any sort of players that you wish could have been able to keep hold of before you uh, lost them at all? Keep hold of and, and not let go. You're talking about... Um, I probably let Sam Ricketts go uh, a year too early. Um, I thought, you know, he probably deserved another year with me. Um, or with us, shall we say. And I think he was disappointed when we did let him go. Um, the Michael Turner scenario was, was something that um, I think was drilled into a lot more um, from a political perspective and from a financial perspective than than what I was led to believe. And that was a hard part, you know. What I was led to believe was that it was worth eight million to the football club. And then um, to understand that, lo and behold, it was a lot less than that, um, was a disappointing part of, of the time, my time at the club. But, you know, things like that happen in the game of football. I think that's um, that's what we're all 
used to nowadays. I think that's one of the main reasons why you do have directors of football and uh, and sporting directors and people like that that can go in front of the manager uh, and and explain the financial package and the scenario of what happened, this, that, and the other. When Michael was around, it was a direct phone call, uh, first and foremost from Rafa Benitez, who was trying to get him at Liverpool. And I thought Michael would struggle at Liverpool. And I gave my opinion on that one. Um, he, was, he would be expected to handle the ball a lot more than what he was doing at Hull City. And I, again, I go back to it. I don't think Michael was brilliant at handling the ball, uh, but he was a good, a bloody good defender. He was nine out of ten every week in terms of defensive qualities. Um, but then to to be replaced sort of by Paul McShane from Michael Turner, who had been through the mill basically at Hull City and knew what it was all about. I think Paul came in and and we had to start again with Paul, you know. So. There's certain things that um, did go on at the time at the club that, you know, you'd like to think at, at that time you had full control over, uh, but something was going on in the background that you didn't have control over. Mm. Uh, Joel, have you got the next question? Yes. Uh, one of our listeners, Joe Palmer, has asked that, were there any players you signed that you thought would have had a bigger impact than they actually did when with the club? Uh I'll give you one off the top of my head, Peter Halmosi. Mm, yeah. Um, I thought Peter, when he first came in, I thought he had all the quality with the ball that was required. Peter in the modern day game would be an outstanding player. Peter, Peter in the modern day game, I'm talking about this this new technical game that we're we're witnessing now. Peter would be playing for Arsenal. You know, he, he would be playing for a club in a higher division. But in the day when you could still have a little tap at a, a winger or make physical contact with a wide player. Uh, I was disappointed in, in that side when anybody did have a go, me being a fullback in my time as a player. Um, whenever you you hit a, a winger, it was up to him to get himself off the, off the floor and, and get back at you. And if he didn't have that quality of character, then you've, won, you, you know, you've already won the battle, regardless of the technical side of them. But um, I think in the modern-day game, I think Peter would have, been, would have been outstanding. And when he came to us, I was expecting that uh, on a game-by-game -game basis. And he didn't really produce it enough. Um, thinking about anybody else now. Obviously, Jimmy, a lot of people have questioned the Jimmy Pollard scenario. But, you know, hand on heart, I think it was, a, it was the right, right move for the club at the time. Um, the club was willing to spend £5 million on a player, uh, a creative midfield player, and then Jimmy gets injured in the first game, and I'll never forget that, uh, getting on the coach at West Ham after the game, and somebody told me he was exactly the same player that did him the first time, Scotty Parker. Uh, I, I found that hard to believe, you know. It's a bit of pill to swallow first time, never mean second time for, for Jimmy himself. For for somebody who has spent £5 million quid and wages, and then to not have that player available to you probably for another year, um, that's that's putting you under pressure. That's that's you know that's chairman and owners and supporters looking at at you as a manager then, uh, and thinking what you're going to do about that about that now. You've spent the money, um, what you're going to do about it? But you had to close ranks. You had to try and win games of football without Jimmy Pollard. It was as simple as that. That's all we could do, you know. Mm. Uh, Nathaniel. Uh, Henry Clark wants to know about the playoff final. Uh, he's asking, uh, at what point did you think you might be able to win? 
<laughs> but mainly four minutes. Um, it's uh, to be to be brutally honest. Did we ever plan for a one nil win in any game of football? You don't do it. It just happens that way. And when that goal comes, okay, it came in the right moment in the first half for us. And then at half time, I'm talking to a group of players, and we sent one of my centre halves is injured. Um, Wayne Brown's um, thigh had tightened up, and rightly so, he shouldn't have gone back out. He should not have gone back out. And uh, it was one of them where I just said to Michael, "You have to stay alongside him. You have, you can't come out. You've just got to stay alongside him." And if we're playing in, in our half, then we've got space behind their back four for the for the turn and use the pace of Caleb Fallan and and Fraser Campbell. Um, so it was um, it was one of them at half time. I thought, can we hang on to a one nil when you you know you're going back out there with ten men basically, and a different tactic and a, a totally different tactic. But we just had that. I don't know. We had that spirit about we. You know, we had that courage. We had that sort sort of character in the team. Um, and I've spoken to many many Bristol City fans since. I'm down in the Cotswolds now. I'm not far from Bristol and. You bump into them every so often. Worst day of their life. That's that's the game, isn't it? It's the worst day of their life. It's the best day of our life. It's the best day of my life in, 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 as a manager in my career. And I'm looking along to Gary Johnson. It's the worst day in his life. And you know, six months later, he's out of work, and I'm flying high in the Premier League. So the, the difference, the chalk and cheese difference, is phenomenal. So when you expect to win a game of football, wow. No chance, and I mean that, no chance until that final whistle went did I think we were going to win that game. I mean, the second half itself, I think we can all remember, was quite tense on it. They had a few chances towards the end and uh, a couple of um, body on the line kind of defending from the likes of, um, I think Sam Ricketts made a, a really good block at one point, which stopped pretty much a certain goal. And uh, I think I can remember Michael Turner throwing himself on the line as well. They really did earn that, earn that win in the second half because Bristol... I can't believe Wayne well, Brown played that entire second half injured. I know, I didn't know that. I couldn't tell. But I did not know, know that at all. No. I mean, it was unbelievable. Really. That, that, for me, surely personifies exactly what we were all about. I said to um, I said to every player that if we get to the Premier League, and this is well documented, you'll know what I'm saying, we'll, everyone would get a chance of playing in the Premier League. Wayne Brown, of all people, um, probably was the one player that made struggle with the pace of the Premier League. Just his reading of the game was normally excellent. His distribution left foot to Richard Garcia was was probably one of our better balls. You know, diagonal ball to Richard Garcia. We'll go and get the next one. Um, there's lots of things to like about Wayne and defensively. Uh, but pace was, wasn't one of his greatest assets. And then consequently, when we got beat five in the second game, we got beat five off... Um, sorry, the third game, wasn't it? Against Wigan. We got beat yeah. five at home. And uh, I think Amiyazaki and uh, Emil Heskey was up front for them. And Wayne had a bit of a, a torrid time and, and he didn't play another game after that, if you remember rightly. But I'll never forget what he did for us when he came in at half-time and said, I'm, I'm struggling. And he, we, 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 didn't have a, we didn't have a centre-half. If you have a look at the bench, we didn't have a centre-half on the bench. So we had to go back out with, with Wayne and, and Michael Turner. So... Um, you know, full credit to the lad for his character. Absolutely priceless what he did for us that day. Yeah. Um, this one's a bit of a two-parter. Um, so, obviously, we, we've mentioned the, um, the the famous or infamous uh, halftime t- team talk, whichever way you want to look at it. Um, 
So Ross Theobald and a, a couple of us on Twitter as well have asked um, the 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 team talk on the pitch. Did you think that that sort of negatively affects the players afterwards? Do you know, obviously, because I don't know if it's just coincidence that the form seemed to turn after that game. I mean, it was a heavy defeat, obviously. Um, but in terms of the game itself, we obviously drew the second half 1-1, didn't we? So you could argue that it maybe had a positive effect on the game. Do you think that some of the players maybe took that personally, kind of like an embarrassing situation? I think maybe one or two did. Um, and, I, you know, I didn't do it for that reason. I did it for a, a very well-documented reason where one or two players had let us down. You know, they'd been out the night before, which was Christmas Day, and um, they let the team down. That wasn't your atypical whole city, whole city performance in the Premier League. Um, we were all about hard work. We were all about graft and, and uh, shape and discipline and, you know, put, put your foot in, put your head in and a little bit of flair. Um, and it was just not an atypical performance. Having said that, Man City were an outstanding team, or they were they were making their way towards being an outstanding team. They had Robinho in there, thirty-three million. Um, our budget in its entirety was sixteen and a half million, so there was twice as much in the budget in one player. So all of that you can level if you want to talk about, you know, finances and business and stuff like that. You can you can talk all day about it, but I wasn't. I was I was all about character and making reference to what my team looks like. The DNA of, of Hull City at that time was hard work and we'd let you down uh, because two players had let us down. Um, you know, so that was the top and bottom of it. But if you guys are true Hull City fans, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about in the next game. The next game we played Aston Villa at home and uh, we had a penalty given in the 89th minute, nil-nil. We had a penalty that was given to us. Ashley Young handled the ball on the on the uh, on the lane yeah. from a corner, and then the fourth official got involved with Sky down the tunnel, and uh, he went to the linesman who was wired up to the referee. Nowadays, it's the fourth officials wired up to the referee as well, but they weren't in them days, and it was the start of all of this VAR and stuff like that. But he ran down the touch lane and told the assistant referee to. A lot, you know, alert the referee. It's on Sky. He didn't handle the ball, and he changed his mind and gave a goal kick. They went up the other end and scored, and made it one nil. So that was the next game after Man City. That's against Aston Villa. So that's the the point I'm trying to get across here. Is did I lose the change room? One one, you know, four nil down at half time. You make a couple of changes. Craig Fagan comes on, scores a goal. So we draw the second half. I'm not about that. I'm not about that. I'm just about the character yeah. of the team. The result was gone. At 4-0 down, I would say 99% of games are lost. But the following day, or the following game, shall I say, was Aston Villa at the KC Stadium and we should have won the game 1-0. VAR got involved before VAR was invented. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that either. That's interesting because you, you, you won't think that that would be allowed, surely. like I, I can't imagine official is allowed to watch live television and then an influence and on-field decision from that? Was there no temptation to maybe try and appeal that in some way? I know, obviously, you can't and, then replay and, uh, the game. I'm all about penalty. improving the game. I'm all about improving the game from a technical point of view and, and whatever. But the laws of the game, I'm all about as well. If you break the law, you know, you've, you've got to be punished. The yes. officials broke the law. Mm. Don't get me wrong. It wasn't a handball on the line. But the referee's given it. The referee's given the penalty. He said... He, he, Put his hand there and then pulled it away and the ball went over the crossbar. 
but he's given the penalty. He's never changed his mind, this referee, and probably about 40 years of refereeing. And he changed his mind because of the influence of Sky to the fourth official who ran down the touchline. I think the fourth official was... Um, oh, what do you call the uh, the uh, referee? Bold referee. Um, do I say Mike good, Dean? Who? Mike Dean. No, I don't think it was Mike Dean, no. Was it Howard Webb? Howard Webb, there you go. Howard Webb ran, ran down the touchline and he, he told the assistant referee who was standing... In lane with the lane because it's a penalty and everything's lined up for it. We're, we're just about to take the penalty. And the referee said, goal kick. Now, that for me should have been investigated. It should have been drilled into. Who's, who's brought the rule there? We haven't brought the rule. The referee's made a bad decision. He's given a penalty. Now, that's the game. That's the way it goes. Sometimes you win them, sometimes you lose them. But the fourth officials got involved with the intervention of Sky down the tunnel. Mm. Very interesting. Um, th there's a follow-on from that as well, because obviously um, Jimmy Bullard uh, scored a penalty at the Etihad um, when we drew 1-1 um, and, and sort of replicated the on-pitch team talk um, yeah. with the team at the time. What were your initial thoughts when you saw it? <laughs> uh, initial thoughts were, I uh, I didn't see it. I, I, I grabbed hold of Richard Garcia um, to... Uh, reshuffle the pack. Um, we were, I think it was about six or seven minutes to go on the clock. And uh, that was the equaliser, 1-1. Uh, and this was a year later after being drubbed 5-1. So it's a sign of progress, if you want to call it that. But um, this could sort of get uh, get that noose from round your neck that's been attached around your neck since you've done the half-time team talk. Anyway, I had, a, I had a hold of Richard Garcia and I'm telling him 4-5-1, tell Jimmy to play as the number ten, but in a five-man midfield and blah blah blah, and I was really I was rearranging the the, uh, the shape of the team for the for to try and get a point or try and get out the game with something, and then uh, I got pulled at half time. As a, sorry, I got pulled at full time by BBC as I was walking down the tunnel at the Etihad Stadium, and as you said, exactly that that question you've just said to me, uh, and I went, "What team talk? What what are you talking about?" I didn't have a clue what the, what had been said. And then I, I witnessed it on the screen, and I just, I just burst out laughing. I thought it was hilarious. I thought it was absolutely <laughs> hilarious. Good. At least, at least you took it. At least you took it well. <laughs> uh, Will, you got another one? Um, yeah. Uh, I've just noticed on on our actual YouTube. Has, have you ever been close to like getting back involved in the club in any way? Uh, not in as much that um, I think. About two, four or five years ago, when the Alams were were really flying this um, Tigers flag and change of colour, change of this, change of that. Um, and the, the club was in serious, um, there was a possibility it was losing its identity. I actually went public and went against the Alams. And because of that, I don't think uh, that I've ever been considered for a position at the club since. Um, you know, it's, it's one of them in foot in football. Sometimes, yeah, you have to toe the line. We get that. You know, you have to say things that are in support of the club, of course. Um, but the club that I had witnessed was a club that was together on and off the field of play. The area was tight. The um, the supporters were tight, even to the extent when I, uh, you know, when I said 
Uh, we were the biggest club in Yorkshire and Leeds United fans here. They were, they were two divisions below us. You know, it was, it was one of them. And I think because of that, I overstepped the mark and owners never forget that. Frequently, uh, since that day, I don't think I've had any, any chance of working at Hull City since. Uh, you ever wanted to then following up from that? Oh, 100%. My word. What a great football club. End of story. No, I'm not I'm not saying that <laughs> for any other reason. I'm not saying that because a job interview out daft like that. It was it's just <laughs> if um regardless of whether I supported Sunderland, I think of all the clubs that I've managed, including Bolton Wonders, I think I was closer to people in Hull and and the club itself. You know, when you get close to a football club. You understand the ways of it, you know. I, I, I was going into the schools. I was talking to the schools about, you know, three years of um, of deprived fishing industry. You know, no industry in the area, and and, and this that, and the other. I was trying to understand how it, how the public perceived you as a as a manager, perceived you as a club, privileged position that we hold, and all that. Um, I remember working on the banks of the Tain, and then I've. I've gone up and down the Tain a couple of times in the last couple of years, there's nothing there. No shipyards, no coal industry. And I, I, it fascinates me how the North East survives. In what industry? Uh, I've got no idea. Uh, but then you, you look back to your days at uh, Hull City, you know, the fishing industry had, with the 12-mile radius had been smashed to, to bits and you had three generations of families that were still coming to games, still affording to come to games. It was just phenomenal. And then... When I spoke up about um, the owners of the club, that's where you've got to be careful. You know, sometimes I, I just jump in because I uh, I'm that supporter that's standing on the terraces at at the full will end at uh, in at Roger Park. I, I'm that supporter. You know, you sometimes you just want to voice your opinion, and the best way to do it as a manager is to make your team win games of football, and then people listen to you. Um, did you have another one from? Um previous questions then will yeah i've got one more um for me so i've got the ginger 42 great name um excluding like the playoff final and say the arsenal games and what was like your favorite game like looking back as a city manager i am um, it's a good it's a good story i think the cardiff game was a was a great day because i thought if truth be known cardiff we're a better team than us at that day, but we ha we held our own. We had a we had a, a nervousness about us that um, defensively we were quite solid. And then we, when we got the the goal, and then to be introduced to um, uh, the new owners on the on the field of play, and then walk around doing a lap of honour, and, and then seeing on the big screen Leeds United getting getting beat. Your sound's just gone a bit muffled, Phil. Sorry? Your sound just went off a little bit then. I don't know if he was covering your mic or something. Oh, sorry, sorry. Um, <laughs> no, being a being a Sunderland fan, that, you're obviously not a black and white, you're not a Newcastle fan. But when we went to Newcastle in the in the um, the early stages, the early rounds of the Premier League, um, we had uh, Craig Fagan and Marlon King up front. And uh, we had a set way of playing. We weren't just doing one channel run, we were doing two. 
were doing both players were going in behind and we were going to stretch the living daylights out of them. And that was the simple game plan. But on the evening of the game, we were staying at a lovely hotel out in the sticks and there was a wedding, um, probably about 250 Newcastle United fans that were clearly going to be an issue, going to be a problem. And um, I phoned up my chairman. I just said, this is, this is ridiculous. If we stay in this hotel... Uh, the police will be out during the course of the night. There'll be fire engines coming out. The, you know, the alarms will be going off. It's just 250 Newcastle fans all on the drink. And we're trying to get sleep and preparing for a game of football. He said, what are you asking? I said, get us out of here. He said, w w where shall we go? I said, well, I don't know. I said, just take me to a hotel that's not full of Newcastle United fans. So we rehoused in the Malmaison on the quayside of all places. And you ever been to the quayside on a on a Friday night? It's normally a, you know, it's chocker. But um, we actually got away with it. There was twenty two spare rooms, and we packed everybody in twos and threes. So our preparation for the game was horrendous. And I got a phone call from the manager of the former hotel saying that you were right. He said you would you were right to leave. The police, the fire engines were coming to the hotel till five o'clock in the morning. On um, you know, nine one one calls. Long story short, we go and win the game, and uh, I'll never forget that. I'll never forget, even even in the face of adversity, we're walking into you want to call it the Lions Den at Newcastle, full house, fifty two thousand, and we win the game. And that was in the early parts of of the Premier League. So I suppose it's a Geordie going back to uh, the northeast uh, with a team uh, that were clearly playing for him. Uh, in Hull City and uh, that was one of my proudest days Nice uh, Joel have you got another one? Yeah one more this is from Chris Dyer he said what was or is your favourite place to visit in Hull in East Yorkshire? The favourite place to go um, I used to love going to Swanland there was a pub there and if anybody's on the on the line now tell me the name there was a pub there and it had a little lake in front of it like a little pond and I used to love going there for a little bite to eat or whatever. Um, so Swanland was a was a place I, I used to take any of the players, you know, the big hitters that were coming into town. I used to think, I'll just take them up there and show them around the surrounding places and this, that and the other. And it sold, it, it sold the idea because it's beautiful up there. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah. But there's nothing better as well, by the way, than Cottingham. I used to love that training ground. I used to think the training ground was like, I don't think it was even 10 acres of land. It was only two, two and a half football pitches. Uh, but the togetherness and the camaraderie that we created in that environment was just quite phenomenal. I used to love going to Cottingham every day, you know? Fantastic. Uh, Nathaniel? Um, I know it's not about whole city, but I am interested anyway. Can you tell us a little bit about your time in India? Yeah, I'm glad you, I'm glad you asked that question. It's, um, you know, because... A lot of the uh, the good memories that I've had have all been British-based or English-based. And uh, when I got the opportunity to manage abroad, uh, it was something I fulfilled as a personal ambition. Um, I don't know if I've ever said it in any interviews when I was at Hull, but I always had a, um, a likeness to want to get abroad at some stage. I always had an idea that it would be over the pond towards America and an English-speaking uh, country, possibly, I never thought for a million years I would be going towards India. Uh, Hero ISL season five, walked into a changing room of 25 players and there was seven 
foreign players, two of which could speak English, and 18 Indian boys who all could speak Hindi, but all had different languages as well. There's about 35 different languages in India alone. And I walked into that changing room and I thought, this is the biggest challenge of my life, trying to get these people to understand me. Um, I stood in front of them. I wrote three words on the on the blackboard, uh, which meant honesty, uh, truth, and uh, what was the other one? Preparation. And I wrote them in Hindi. And um, the Indian boy straight away latched onto me like, you know, like I knew what I was talking about. Like I knew I understood <laughs> their language and I didn't. These were just three words that I had down. And I thought, I'll write them down in Hindi and see if I can convince them that that's what I'm all about. Um, I also had a player in there that was um, Champions League footballer. Um, played for Rapid Vienna. Uh, a lad called Marco Stankovic. And he could speak five languages. So he was sort of acting as my Mourinho in everything. You know, when I spoke to the media, when I spoke to individual players that didn't understand English, he would come in with me. So I got quite a good relationship going with Marco. So... It was um, that was the the early testing parts, but then we then had a challenge where football was concerned because technically they are probably Indian lads are probably top end second division, which is not a bad challenge. It's not a bad um, you know technical area, but some of the understanding of the game was a lot le- left a lot to be desired. But attitude, attitude wise, the best I've ever worked with. They would run and run and run. You couldn't stop them running. It was just phenomenal. And they were built to run, to be fair. You know, like 5% body fat and not carrying any excess weight and certainly not overeating uh, because there was, you know, a a lack of food. Uh, But uh, it was a great challenge. And for to go back there the second year and then the third year on the production team, I really really enjoyed my time. Nice. Um, so I've got another question here, and I think this one will be quite because I don't think I've ever seen this go into well, gone into too much depth. Um, I think you especially will remember about this um, this incident on the bridge. Aye. Um, can you go into any sort of detail about what happened and and how you resolved it, kind of thing? Um, there was an incident on the bridge with a young girl. That's um, I don't know. Well, I got it right, got it wrong. But there was an incident on the bridge with regards to Nicky Bambi and, and Jimmy Bullard. Which one are you talking about? Uh, the Jimmy Bullard and Nicky Bambi one, I assume. Yeah. Um, the, the Jimmy Bullard and Nicky Bambi one was... Nicky, Nicky was walking off the pitch at half-time um, at Everton. And uh, he asked if he could say something before I said something, which was a new thing. You know, Nicky had never asked for for that kind of uh, permission at all, um, ever before. So I thought, well, it's, it's normally a good thing that it comes from a player. Because if, if there's a rollicking, I think we've been turned over six, haven't we? Yeah. At, so. at Everton. Mm-hmm. And um, Nicky had a, a beanie's bonnet about um, Jimmy Bullard, about his work rate. And uh, so he went he went after him in the change room. And, but then he, he didn't understand. When I, when I pulled Nicky after um, that incident... Uh, he hadn't understood that he had gone personal. He had gone personal, and a manager never goes personal. A manager or a coach can't go personal. You have to point out uh, reasons why and and try and articulate them as best you possibly can, so that you know you, you're giving yourself leeway. You know you're, you're allowing yourself Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday on the training ground to get things right. 
Uh, but once you go personal, that's it. It's a cut-off point and it's very difficult to get it back. Well, Nicky wasn't on the coaching staff. He was just a, a very respected member of the of the, um, of the changing room. Uh, but he felt as if he needed to say something, allowed him to say it. And once he started, he couldn't pull back. He couldn't stop. <laughs> anyway, long story short, the following day went on the Monday and um, we sometimes used to do a warm down on the Humber Bridge. And the warm down was quite simple. There was plenty of giving the Humber Bridge. I don't know if you guys have ever walked across there or jogged across there. I did it quite often living in uh, North Ferriby. I used to run over the Humber Bridge and there was always a little bit of a, a spring and a bounce in it, uh, a little bit of give. Uh, and that, for me, was sometimes a, a good way of doing a warm down, go for a jog, walk, jog, walk, and then talk to the players. And then you see that beautiful bridge and then the river. And, and sometimes you get a fresh perspective in life you know you're looking out into the sea or you're looking at the land you're looking at the bridge and sometimes it makes you think differently it's something apart from football anyway long story short um i got tied into a, a staff meeting uh at cottingham and i couldn't get out of the staff meeting so i said to steve park and um and one or two of the uh, sports science department go and take the warm down on the humber bridge let me know when you're finished and then we'll do the video when you get back and next thing you know i'm getting phone calls coming from everywhere that had been reported by the women's institute uh, women's institute who have a, were having a march that day that there'd been an altercation between two whole city players and obviously jimmy and jimmy and uh and nicky Barmy hadn't let it lie you know they just went toe to toe <laughs> the only downside to that is i wasn't there i'd love to have seen that <laughs> <laughs> but um, anyway, that's uh, that's the top and bottom of it. It wasn't uh, it wasn't um, anything nasty. It was just badly yeah. reported. It was just two players that had a point to say, and they weren't putting it down the following day. So the manager had to settle it, which we did do. Good. Uh, does anybody else have any questions? Is there any left? There's there's a couple left. But Richard, what was the other story involving a bridge? Sorry, Phil. Oh, there was a, a young girl on the on the bridge, and I honestly thought that um, I don't know when you just when you look at some people, you know, you you think major problem, um, and that's all it was. That's all it was, and I managed to have a chat with her, and we're just talking. And fifteen twenty minutes later, she walked off the bridge, uh, other side of um, other side of the um, river, not this side, not not the whole side. She walked off. Um, she walked off the bridge, and then. I did a press conference afterwards and I, I told somebody this story, just loose, nothing heavy, just flippantly told this story. Next thing you know, I've saved somebody's life. And it was just blown out of proportion. And it was horrendous because at the end of the day, it was whatever it was. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, but that's where I'm talking about, you know. That's where I had to understand that social media, that the media themselves, when you're in the Premier League, you're there to be shot at. And you've just got to pour cold water on it. You never get the real story then, you know. You never get the true yeah, whole city or the true Phil Brown or the true changing room. You just get, you know, made up made up stories. And I don't you know, I think the whole city fans deserve better. Yeah. There's there's one more that I can see on our YouTube feed, and it's from one of our friends, Benedict Farabee. Um, and it's what was the best atmosphere you remember at the KC Stadium? Like what particular game? Um, I think it was the the semi-finals, uh, yeah. the two-legged two-legged affair against Watford, and uh, I'll never forget the noise when Nicky Barnby scored just before half time because I was seriously 
concerned about the, the game because Watford, uh, I knew the manager very well. I knew the type of football he played uh, was direct. He wasn't going to pass it. He was just going to hit the front man and try and get the second balls. And there wasn't too much uh, technical stuff about him. Uh, sorry, about that club at the time. And then in the first five minutes of the game, in the second leg, my word, started passing the ball around like the way, you know, a world beater, you know, like Man City. Uh, and they were knocking it about and, and they scored. And I thought, oh, this is uh, not what I expected. I thought he only knew, you know, I thought he knew, knew only one way to play. Um, and lo and behold, the Nicky Barmby goal for me really took the pressure off. And then we went the second half and won the game comfortably. Yeah. Uh, because all types revert to norm. You know, it doesn't matter who you are individually, collectively, you always go back to what you think is best or and you revert to type. Uh, and that's what Watford did in the second half and we beat them comfortably and, and consequently got to the uh, got to the final. But that the noise when the goal went in, because it wasn't a great goal, it was a, a shot deflected in the open the air, and Nicky beat the goalkeeper, I think, on the touch yeah, and scored from about half a yard. Yeah, so... Um, that noise and atmosphere and that night itself was just outstanding. And it's uh, it sticks in my memory um, like as if it was yesterday. Yeah, that was that was a good atmosphere, to be fair. Uh, was was there uh, any other questions left from anybody else? I don't know if we've used them all. No, is there anything um, you want to ask yourselves? No, I've got yeah. one. Sorry. I've got one. Um, in terms of the players you played it like, your team's played against in the Premier League, who was the best player you'd say that you'd come against? <clears throat> best player we came up against? Um, wow. I mean, there, there were some great players in the Premier League at that time. And I, I'm, I'm going back. There's a story, there's a story there when I'm, I'm going back as a, a coach when I first came into, uh, into coaching. I started with Sam at Blackpool and then I went quickly to Bolton Wanderers with Colin Todd. And um, we went, uh, we blew the championship out of, out of sight, 100 points, 100 goals. Great season, fantastic season. But went into the Premier League with the same team, like we did at Hull. And um, with no fear and this and that. But we had, had, had absolutely an outstanding season in the championship that Toddy fully thought that we'll, we'll smash the Premier League, we'll do well in the Premier League, we've got a certain style of playing. But then we get sort of five or six games in and I can see the, sometimes the gremlins are in where managers are concerned and you start wondering about the opposition a little bit more than what you did in the championship. You know, you start preparing for the opposition a little bit more, a little bit better, individuals. And he said to me one day um, on a Thursday, I think it was, we'd done a little bit of teamwork on the Thursday. So we knew what our side was going to be. But we'll go back to the original question, Ant, about systems and that. And um, Colin Todd said, uh, this was my homework. I felt as if this was my homework. Take it back and then bring in the answer on the Friday. Would you ever change your system for an individual? Meaning, would you ever, is there a player in the Premier League now that you would man-mark? And that was the question I thought at the time. I, I, I honestly, I couldn't think of anybody that I would I would change my system for. I don't think I don't think it's worthwhile to sacrifice one of your players to go and follow another player around, and then if he's a midfield player or he's a defender or he's a striker, you're just upsetting the whole system. And that contradicts the fluidity kind of, of side of the argument where I'm concerned. 
Cody came in on the Friday and I, I, I said my answer was no. He said, we got playing Spurs on Saturday, which I do obviously. Um, he said, I'm going to man mark David Ginola. And I went, all right, okay, who's it? And he went, Chrissy Bakewell. We're losing your mic again a bit there, Phil. Sorry? We're losing your mic a bit there then again. Did you did you hear the name of the player? We had, yeah, we had most of it. Just, just up he said, the last uh, bit, David Ginola. And yeah. uh, I said, okay, who who's going to mark him? And he said, Chrissy Fairclough. So I said, so what system are we playing? He said, we're going to play a flat back four, which we, we had played 4-4-2 four, four, the majority of the time. Flat back four, but we're playing with two centre-halves and Chrissy Fairclough, wherever David Ginola goes, he's going to follow him around. So he tried it in the training session. It was difficult to try and get the, the, the opinion across because you're sacrificing somebody somewhere by Chrissy just standing in a different area. Anyway, we lost the game 1-0 and David Ginola scored the goal. Um, so it was a counter-argument against would you ever sacrifice your team selection or your team formation for one player in the opposition. I'm not saying he was wrong and I'm not saying I was right. I'm just saying I don't think there is anybody that you would do that for. But having said that, you fast forward to 13, I think 12 years after me and Colin went in the Premier League in 96, 97, I think we went in. And we're going in this whole city. I'd been in there for about five or six seasons with Colin Todd, uh, with um, Sam Allardyce and Bolton. And now I'm all of a sudden there with a the team myself. And week in and week out, I used to ask myself that question. Is there a player on the opposition's team that I'm going to sacrifice, say, Andy Dawson and go man mark him? And th there wasn't. There was never a player that I thought, even going to Manchester United, you know, even... Robinho for Man City, or or, or um, if you go to Arsenal, some of the some of the great players that Arsenal can boast at that time. Um, I never, I've always felt as if we were all better suited with the system and the formation and the discipline and the the mentality that we had at Hull City. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes yeah. perfect sense for me. Um, I've saved this question because I feel like this will be a really really interesting one, and I think you're really going to struggle with this. <laughs> um, Joe Palmer's asked what would be your best Hull City 11 so across your tenure no matter what year he wants to know your 1 to 11 if you could pick your Hull City dream team who mm. would be in it and why well it is it's a difficult one very very difficult where do you you've got to start with Boaz Mile haven't I um, that yep. one's fairly simple I think um, Andy Dawson would be my left back for sure um, Anthony Gardner, uh, Michael Turner, right back. I would have to say Sam Ricketts, uh, and that's one of the reasons why I thought I let him go probably a year too early. Um, Nicky Barmby would be in my team, and that goes back to the original question about systems. What system do you play with Nicky in your team? Um, Ian Ashby would be in my team for sure. Um, just trying to think of the midfield now. If you're looking at um, if you're looking at players out wide in a side, Peter Halmosey didn't didn't do much for us. Bernard Mendy didn't do much for us. Um, you'd have to say with Nicky Barmby and Giovanni in the same team, I'd probably play Giovanni as a ten and Nicky out wide. Um, on the right or the left. You know, <laughs> that thing is, P 
people like Stuart Elliott did a great job for us, didn't he? Stuart Elliott, when you think about how we played with Stuart Elliott, it was it was quite phenomenal. Like he just crashed balls into him and he scored goals from 25 yards with his head. <laughs> it was unbelievable. Uh, Fraser Campbell would be in the same team. Oh, dear me. <laughs> really, really good question. Um, and you haven't given me any time to prepare that, but I'll come back to you. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's I'll better come back when it's to you with 11. I've given you about nine players there, haven't I? Uh, I think so. Mile, Dawson, Gardner, Turner, Ricketts, Ashby, Barnby, Giovanni, and Fraser Campbell. I don't know if you included Elliot. No, I didn't include Elliot. No, I think Stuart Elliot was definitely not. Stuart wouldn't have done well in the in the Premier League. Uh, I don't think. Um, I think he was limited, but he did fantastic for the uh, for the club. Um, I think you're missing no, a I'll forward come, I'll, in the left midfielder, maybe. I like I liked Stephen Hunt as well. You know, I really did like Stephen Hunt. Yeah. Um, I thought he wore his, his shirt, the shirt with pride, uh, but sometimes that little bit of a lack of pace. Uh, going his way. I would have to say Craig Fagan, wouldn't I? Because I've just worked with Craig as an assistant manager. So I'd have to put Craig in somewhere, wouldn't I? <laughs> it depends. Do you do you want an angry text message after this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Listen, I've really enjoyed that, Ant. Thank you very much. Yeah, no worries. Um, I think uh, we've pretty much covered everything. I mean, there's someone that I promised I would ask this question and I'm, I'm, I'm expecting the same answer. But someone that I know called uh, Rich Anderson has um, been telling his mates for years that he has your tie, you know, from the um, when when you took the microphone and sang on the final game of the first Premier League season. Yeah. he's He's been telling his mates for years that he has your tie that you were wearing that day. And he's wondering if you still have it. And if so, can he have it? So it's actually true. <laughs> if he's still got it, you can have it. Absolutely. No problem. As long as, as, long as he's got to wear it every Saturday night in the town. <laughs> I'll tell him that. I think he'll enjoy it he'd probably he'd be fine with that as well I think um, so unless anybody else has got any other questions I think that uh, covers pretty much everything we wanted to yeah yeah no, fantastic no right no, so thank you for joining there. us then Phil um, yeah massive thanks really really enjoyable thank episode you. thank you for uh, giving up your midday Monday just to speak to us I think um a lot of City fans were very excited that they could um, w listen to us talk to you because I think, like I said, you're still held in very high regard amongst the whole City fan base. I think, you know, you'll always be welcome about around our city and uh, we're always going to be thankful for the things you've done and what you achieved with us and, and, and we hope you I, um, wish you well with everything you do. I really appreciate it, Ant. Um, got great memories of Hull City and um, I really mean that. You know, I wish I could have gone back to the club at some stage in some capacity. Um it's one of them where you know certain parts of your career, certain parts of your life uh, you remember, and you remember them for the right reasons, you know, and I think it's because I shared a, a, a mutual feeling about the club themselves by the supporters. I think I could have quite easily... Uh, Are you still there? Oh, there we... Yeah, we lost your mic just for a little bit at the end. Oh... <laughs> Technical difficulties now. <laughs> Has he gone? What timing? Has he gone? Right then. Um, I really enjoyed that. <sighs> nearly two hours and it felt like it were half hour. <laughs> uh, thanks to everyone listening. Uh, if there's anybody still there, um, I think it was, um, it should have been a nice midday viewing for, for, for anybody that was listening. If, if you're 
listening on your lunch break at work or you're driving somewhere in car. Um, if we missed your questions off, um, we're sorry. I did try to, to I, we got a lot at the same time and I tried to clear as many together as I could. Um, I feel like we pretty much covered any possible topic that someone could have asked for us about him and, and more. Um, obviously, thanks to you three for coming on again. I feel like, um, I mean, Joel's technically still at work. <laughs> so, yeah. It's uh, a good job that Joel could find some time to come on. Um, are we going to do an episode about the Everton game? Yeah. Yeah. I haven't got a time for it, but... No, no. I don't think I've got some time either. Nathaniel might not be. Me and Will might have a little talk about it. We'll see. We'll, um, we'll let you know about that in the future. But like I said, to anyone that was watching, thanks for joining us. Uh, we will obviously be back at our usual times. Uh, I think it's Leon Court next Monday, isn't it? Yeah, please. Um, so yeah, we've obviously got Leon Court to come on um, another interview. So if you've got any questions for us to for ask to ask him, um, sorry, I'm live. <laughs> um, so if you've got any questions, send them in again, and we'll try and ask them. Um, we're going to try and get um, more city guests, city related guests on if we can. Uh, but obviously, like I said, this episode, again, sponsored by Six Yards Out, Hull City Retro. Uh, they're on the link tree, so when you click to listen to the episode, do go check them out. Uh, and as always, please support the whole badge, man. Um, we have actually announced um, the charity partner at the minute. Uh, we are with Andy's Man Club, which, if you've never heard of them before, um, they're a very good charity that holds talking sessions for men that are struggling with their mental health, I think, especially in times like um, at the moment where uh, people can, you know, lockdowns and loss of job and things, you know, financial stress of Christmas, etc. We we all want more to be done for men's mental health. So partnering with a charity like them and being able to do fundraisers and actively raise money to improve men's mental health uh, is a big thing for me personally. I know it will be for you three and for anybody listening. Do check them out and, and donate if you can. Uh, we are currently working on a project that you will be able to donate to Andy's Man Club through that means. Um, so once I tie up a couple of, uh, well, dot the I's and cross the T's in that sense, we will get that announced. And I think it should go down quite well. We're all excited for it. Um, uh, so hopefully we, we can announce that in the coming days. Uh, I'm, I'm just talking to a couple of people about it. So like I said, thanks for joining us and uh, we'll see you again next time. Thank you. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.